Hey, it's good to see you guys again this week. You know, it's your first time hanging out online with us, uh, and I've never met you. I'm Dan, one of the pastors here. Love the fact you're joining us. If you have a Bible, go to Psalm 3. We're going to continue our conversation together in this 40-day prayer journey. You can go online, see some of the resources. You might be saying, hey, well, if you've already started the 40-day journey, uh, how in the world do I get started with that? Start wherever you're at. Just take this journey for 40 days. We're in it already, but you started today. Never too late to start. We're just glad that you're joining us. Uh, we're doing some exciting things. You can go online, check that out. We're having this conversation, quite frankly, because we're saying we all pray, or most of us do. Most of us pray, or at least we say we pray. That's what statistics say. Most of us say that we pray, so you pray. Uh, some of y'all have been sending me some uh, ways in which you pray. It's kind of fun, right? Y'all are funny. I told you that last week. And so I don't have time to read everything that I'm getting from y'all. But, but uh, kind of one category is, uh, is that some of y'all want me to know how your kids are praying. Uh, one kid prayed, Dear God, my mom tells me that you have a reason for everything on earth. I guess broccoli's got to be one of your mysteries. <laughs> I like that. I'm with that kid. Uh, please forgive me for hiding my sister's favorite doll, and please don't tell her where it's at. One kid prays. I like this. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but I really wanted a puppy. <laughs> I like that. Now, how about this? Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got? That's a pretty good question, right? I like this, particularly this time of year. Dear God, please put another holiday between Christmas and Easter. There's really nothing good in there right now. <laughs> I like that, right? Uh, prayer's funny, right? We said uh, most of us pray. Uh, we can pray wrong. We can pray to the wrong audience. We can pray the wrong way. So what we said is this. Prayer can be confusing because some of us grew up and we watched people pray. We've seen different models of prayer. Uh, some of you grew up with these routine prayers, right? God is great. God is good. Or now I lay me down to sleep. Some of you kind of went, the, the way you learned to pray was this like Hail Mary prayers. What I mean by that is this, when all else fails, yeah, you must pray, right? And so that's how you learn. Like prayer is the last resort, right? And when all else fails, I pray. Some of us is a grocery list prayer. I told you like my mom prayed this, like she prayed for everybody, right? All the missionaries everywhere. Uh, and then some of you pray this way. For some of you, prayer kind of was this thing that was illustrated for you like a vending machine prayer. You kind of push the button, hope what you pushed comes out. And when it doesn't, you get a little disappointed. For some of you, it's the hipster prayer, the, the hey God, what's up dude, the sweet baby Jesus prayer, whatever it is. Prayer can be confusing, right? Because uh, you see all these different ways to pray. The question that we're going to entertain today, we've been learning about prayer, is this. For the next several minutes, how do you and I pray when all of life around us seems to be falling apart? And, and, and as life falls apart around us, it seems to set off a firestorm inside of us, a firestorm of emotions. In fact, next three weeks, we're going to look at this. How do we pray through our emotions? I don't know if you thought about this or not. Normally, there are one of two ways we deal with our emotions. Chances are you deal with your emotions one of two ways. Some of you stuff them. Just raise your hand if that's you. Uh, what I mean by that is you stuff your emotions. They are the things you pack in the trunk of the car, right? Put them away where you can't see them. Almost forget they're there. Pack them in the trunk. There's others of you. You don't stuff them. You vent them. Raise your hand if that's you, right? Uh, you don't pack them away in the trunk of the car. Uh, your emotions are driving the car. Right? Some of you are driven by your emotions, and some of you know who, who you are. And maybe another way to look at it is some of us are, when it comes to our emotions, we're a turtle. We go into our shell. 
Some of us are a skunk. We just spray it everywhere, right? And you, you know where you're at in that. In the book of Psalms, we see this. The book of Psalms gives us a third way, so to speak, to deal with our emotions. Uh, not to pack them away and deny them, but, but they don't need to be in the driver's seat of our car. The book of Psalms gives us a third way. The question is what happens when we don't stuff them and don't let them drive our life? What happens is how do we pray through our emotions? Psalms is a collection of deeply emotional prayers. They're, they're kind of the getting real with God types of conversations. And today, for a few minutes, in Psalm chapter 3, I want to take a look at praying through our fear. Praying through our fear. Now, here's where I want to go. Psalm chapter 3. You have your Bibles open there? Let's just read it together, and then we're going to slice it apart and make some application. Here's what David is the one praying this. Uh, a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom is what it says. And it says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep, and I awake again, because the Lord, you're the one who sustains me. I will not fear, though ten thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. I love how real he is, right? You ever want, you ever want to pray that? Uh, from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Wow. What a prayer. Uh, how do you and I pray when we're afraid? How do you and I pray when life around us seems to be falling apart and it sets off this firestorm of emotions within us? How do we pray when there's things in life that threaten us, disappoint us, create anxiety within us? Fear is one of our first emotions. If you think about it, come into this world, it's like, whoa, right? No one has to teach you how to be afraid. And so if you and I are going to develop a close relationship with God, we're going to have to figure out how to talk to him through our fears. And I think that's exactly what's going on in Psalm chapter 3. Look what happens. Let's begin Psalm chapter 3. He begins this thing, and it says this. It says, if you, if you have your Bibles open, in italics it says, the Psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes, how many rise up against me. It's pretty obvious, quick here, that David is afraid, and for good reason. This psalm is written by David, and he's writing it, as he's fleeing from Absalom, who happens to be his son. David wrote this prayer in his prayer journal during a really, really rough time in his life. I think it might be fair to say that life was falling apart around him. In fact, he was running for his life. This psalm is written in a real-life context. The real-life context that it's written in is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 18. You can read the story. It's, it's an incredible story. David is the king, the, the, the most powerful one in Israel. And his son, Absalom, stages a coup. And what he begins to do is to win the hearts of the people. He manipulates them and steals the heart of the people until he begins chasing his father to rip his kingdom away from him. 
And at the time of David writing this psalm, this prayer, 12,000 foot soldiers are chasing David. He is afraid for his very life. It tells me something about prayer. Write this down somewhere. I can be real about what I'm afraid of. Like when I pray to God, I can be real. I don't got to sugarcoat it. I don't got to pretend it's another. Don't want to deny it. Don't need to let it drive my life. But I can come into God and praying through my fear begins with me being real about my very real fears. But there's something else going on. Because that, if that's where it ended, right? It's like, okay, I'm just going to be real about my fears. But look at what it says next. Not only are many coming after me, but here's what David says. It's not just soldiers chasing me. He says, many are saying of me, God will do not deliver him. Now guys, there's something important here. I wanna, I wanna kind of tease this out for you because some of you, life's falling apart. You're afraid, there's threats, business isn't going well, uh, marriage is struggling, whatever it might be. Not only in this prayer is there a coup, but people are saying to David, in essence, God has forsaken you. God is done with you. God's given up on you. You ever had somebody say that about you? You ever thought somebody thought that about you? Actually, it's interesting. In 2 Samuel, we see that literally playing out. 2 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 5, as King David, this is in the middle of the events around Psalm 3, approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shammai, son of Gerah, and he cursed as he came out. He began to pelt David and all the king's officials with stones. All the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, imagine this, so he comes out and David's the king and he's running and this guy comes and he starts throwing stones at David and all the bodyguards and secret servicemen, all that stuff. Imagine this. Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul and in whose place you've reigned. The Lord's given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you're a murderer. A couple of David's men at that point say, hey, you want to go over and cut the guy's head off? Like, David's like, no. Verse 13. So David and his men continued along the road while Shema was going along the hill opposite them, cursing as he went, throwing stones. He just kept cursing them, showering him with dirt, throwing dirt, kicking dirt at him. And the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. I bet they were. And he refreshed himself. Guys, think about this for a minute. Just, just let this be real for a second. Think about the arc of David's life. David kind of came on the scene of notoriety by being a young shepherd boy. You remember the story? Who took some stones and one of those stones, with one of those stones, he killed the Philistine champion, Goliath. And all of a sudden, David was the hero. Now he's the king being pelted with stones by some guy, obscure guy named Shammai. David, at the beginning of his career as a soldier, they would sing about him. He killed his tens of thousands like he's better than Saul. Now at the end, in this situation, he has this guy kicking dirt in his face saying, get out of here, you're a murderer, you're a scoundrel, you're a piece of junk. 
David was the king who ruled and reigned. Now, he's the king who's come to ruins and he's on the run. David, in his, in his kingship, enjoyed God's blessing. Now he's enduring the cursing. You see where the ark of his life, the ark of David's life took a twist when he took God's gift that God gave him and began to take matters into his own hands. And if you read the story of David, it's like he begins to take this gift where God places him in this prominent, powerful, influential position and he misuses it. And he begins and he has a relationship with Bathsheba, a married woman. And then he manipulates situation to have her husband killed and now his own family is a wreck. Now the word on the street, and I would suggest not just the word on the street, but the word deep inside of his heart. The deeper fear of David is that God was done with him, that God was gonna forsake him, that God had given up on him. And I think David's prayer helps us understand that praying, how to pray through our fear in a constructive and transformative way. I want you to write this down somewhere. I need to pray, you need to pray through my fears till they reveal my deeper anxieties. He was afraid of the foot soldiers for sure, but he needed to pray. That's not all there was to it. He needed to keep praying through his fear till it took him to what he was really, really, really anxious about. Our external fear reveals our internal anxieties. Write that down somewhere. Our external fear reveals our internal anxieties. I believe there's a difference. Uh, or there are levels of fear that go into anxiety. And the thought isn't original with me. Lots of psychologists and things like that have, have done work on this and they've fleshed this out. But, but let me say it this way. Fear at its basic level is a very instinctive and temporary response to a clear and present danger. Just think about this. That's what fear is. It's an instinctive response to a clear and present danger. There is a very identifiable threat. So what happens in fear is I see a threat and all of a sudden my adrenal glands turn on and I get this burst of energy so that I can do things that maybe I otherwise wouldn't be able to do. I remember uh, maybe a good illustration of, of fear. My, uh, my oldest boy, Joel, when we came here to Norton, uh, he, uh, my buddies loved, loved to play football. And he was, uh, my son Joel is about 140 pounds soaking wet. And, uh, but, but fast, he's fast. And uh, could catch the football. So he played wide receiver. And I remember his 10th grade year, I remember uh, we were at the old Norton Stadium and we were standing up there and he was uh, in, in the game, it was a varsity game, the, the game was tight. And I remember the coach calling the team over to timeout. I remember him looking at Joel and talking to him, and I thought, oh, man, this might be going to Joel. And uh, I remember they threw him a pass. And I remember he caught the pass, and, man, he, like, like I saw a burst of energy. Just like, boom, he ran down the sideline with this speed that I had never seen before. And it scored a touchdown, like game-winning touchdown. It was like incredible, right? Every crowd's going crazy. My wife went so crazy, she turned around and she hugged the first bald guy she could find, right? It, it, it didn't happen to be me. <laughs> but I remember uh, watching this and some guy said to me, he says, man, he says, man, I, he is incredibly fast. Like I, I 
he's really a fast wide receiver. And I thought, he is fast. But I said to this guy, I said, he's a lot faster than I've ever seen. I think he's so small, those guys running after him kind of made him run faster because a fear ignited in him. I don't want them to catch me, right? You see, fear will do that, this burst of energy. But anxiety is different. Because what anxiety is, is this vague. It's a more permanent feeling of dread and meaninglessness. It's, it's like there's no clear source to it. It's something deeper. It's the dread of a thousand little deaths over time. It's the dread that what's at stake is my identity, my worth, and my value. You see, Joel caught that football and I was happy for him. And he ran like a cheetah because I think he was afraid those guys catch me, that's going to hurt. But I had a guy say something to me after he caught that. A guy said to me, man, I bet you're proud of him. And it made me think something. I'm like, what I said to the guy was, well, I'm proud of him. But I thought to myself, I would have been proud of him whether he caught the ball or didn't catch it. And it made me begin thinking that a different kind of fear could begin to resonate within even my own son. And that fear would be this. From here on out, when they throw me the ball, this fear that if I don't catch it, if I don't succeed, then I won't be somebody. Then I won't be important. Then I won't be celebrated. That I won't be valuable. Then I won't have an identity. You see, fear, I'm going to run, don't want those guys to catch me. Anxiety, if I don't catch it, then I'm not going to have value. You see, I would draw the picture like this, that our external fear begins to reveal this internal anxiety. And that begins to instruct the way we pray. God, I'm afraid I won't make the team. Because what I'm really afraid of is that if I don't, I won't be important. God, I'm afraid this economy is going to sink my business because what I'm really afraid of is that if my business tanks, I'm going to be seen as insignificant and not valuable. God, I'm afraid that if I don't find a boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm going to be seen as not lovable. You see, when you start to pray this way, you've really started to pray. David is real about his fear, and he allows his fear to excavate his heart to a deeper level to uncover his anxiety, what's really there. You see, I think the same is true for you and I. The things that are falling apart outside of us begin to uncover the deeper anxieties. I love the fact that prayer goes here next. If you have your Bibles open, circle the word but, but you. He turns his attention, praying through our emotions as being real and allowing the fear to excavate the deeper anxieties. And then praying through them is getting to the point, but, but I'm talking to you, Lord. That's, that's who I'm talking to. This is what's real about what's going on with me. But you, Lord, I'm going to turn my attention to you, Lord. And the term that he uses here is one of deep personal affection and relationship. I'm afraid, and the fear is rooted in a deeper anxiety, but you, Lord. And look what he says. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Guys, it's fascinating, right? It's fascinating. 
Uh, he starts by saying, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. What is he talking about here? It's interesting that he calls the Lord a shield. Uh, there's some poetic imagery here. There's this powerful picture. I think about it. Why, why does he say that? Well, why do you need a shield? Why would you need a shield? Just think about this. Just It's not a hard question. Like if you're going to sit on the couch and watch TV, you don't need a shield. You're going to go to the grocery store, you don't need a shield. Uh, maybe. you know. I guess I've been a few times with my, my wife and there are times you might need a shield. But, but predominantly speaking, you don't need a shield to go to the grocery store, right? Uh, you need a shield. Why do you need a shield? You need a shield because you're going to get ready to go into the battle zone. You need a shield when you're going into danger zone. Until you go into danger zone, the shield just hangs on the wall or sits in the closet. But you go into the battle zone, you need the shield, and you need it close to you, covering the most vital parts of you. The shield doesn't prevent danger. It protects the most vital parts of you. That's the imagery. The shield protects the most vital part of us, and he calls God his shield, not because God's going to prevent the battle, not because God's going to prevent the hard stuff, the threats, the things that we're afraid of. He'll protect the most vital parts of us if we keep him close. We can assume, many of us, just maybe you're like this, we assume God's with us when things are good. God, awesome. God's with me. God's blessing me. So grateful. God is good all the time. But when things are bad, when there are threats, when we're afraid, we can assume, like David and the people who were yelling at him, that God's abandoned us. But when we see him as our shield, we realize that it's in the tragedy, in the fear, the threats, and the battle that he is the closest. I would write it down this way. The prayer is this, Lord, I will trust you and keep following you through the circumstances I'm afraid of. That's what it means for him to be our shield. You see, there's something important here that David does. I, I thought it was interesting. He says, you're a shield around me. Well, all of a sudden I realized maybe it's not this kind of shield that I put on my arm, but you're a shield around me. And I was doing a little reading on this and, and comment, some commentators kind of refer to some things and a guy named Tim Keller, who you've heard me reference before, he, he references some things, that this is a shield around me that, that, that would have been around me as we would have besieged a fortress. And, and it's a shield that would have been around me as I followed my general to besiege the fortress into hostile territory, into threatening zone. That's the picture. And the only way the shield works is if I keep following my general and moving forward. I think that's the picture. Sometimes we trust God, but when it gets hard and very tough, we stop trusting him till the tough stuff lifts. And David says, that's when I need him. And quite frankly, that's when he my shield is closest to me, protecting the most vital parts of me. Makes this passage come alive to me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Submit, follow him. He'll make your path straight. 
even in the parts you don't understand, even in the parts that are scary, even in the parts that are foggy, even in the parts that seem threatening, even in the parts that are uncomfortable. He says, trust me. Why? I'm your shield. I don't prevent, I protect the most vital parts of you. He goes on to say this then. He says, but you, Lord, are my glory. You're my glory. What's he saying there? What does it mean that the Lord is my glory? Well, let me teach you some Hebrew. Uh, the word glory is the word kavod. Ready? Everybody try that, right? I know you're in the coffee shop. Shh, listen. But say it out loud. Ready? One, two, three. Kavod. Yeah. Here's what it means. It means weight, weightiness, heaviness. It talks about importance, significance, security, my identity. It, it's a, the idea of a valued status. Our kavod is where we put the weight of our value, our identity, our significance, our importance. I think David may be praying this because quite frankly, he had put his kavod in some other places. And where he had put his kavod, his importance, his significance was now all stripped away. He misplaced his kavod. Remember his story. He goes from being the poor shepherd boy to becoming the hero of Israel, and now he has this guy throwing stones at him. He goes from them celebrating the tens of thousands he killed to being called a murderer and a scoundrel. He goes from being, being the guy ruling and reigning to now on the run and in ruin. You see, what's interesting is this. Anything uh, he, he had placed his kavod in was now evaporated. It's gone. His own son is chasing him down. There went father of the year. <laughs> and I think what David is praying and I think what it's encouraging us to pray is this. Lord, I want the complete weight of my significance, value, and identity to be wrapped up in you. Let me just say something. Our fears will expose our idols. The thing that we're afraid of losing will expose the thing that probably we're placing our weight in, placing our worth on. When good things become ultimate things, they become idols. We give them significance and value. They become an idol. Your spouse can become an idol, and you can place the weight of your identity, your significance, your importance on your spouse. You'll crush them. They're not meant to bear that. Your kids, your business, your talent, your sports success. Tim Keller said this just in an uh, interview that I heard him giving. My anxiety is the smoke that will lead me to the fire of my idols. I can trace whatever I'm anxious about, whatever I'm afraid of losing, back to whatever it is that I'm putting my, the weight of my significance into. And what David is saying is this. He's saying, I want the weight of my identity to be wrapped in you, God. I want the weight of my value wrapped in you, my significance wrapped in you, my importance wrapped in you. That's what he's saying. Then he says this. But you, Lord, are the one who lifts my head high. He says, you, after everything I've been through, 
after all of my life story, you're the reason I can hold my head high. Not pick my head up, but because you're the one who lifts my head up. How can David say this? How can David be so confident after all of his life that God hears him? You ever wonder that? You ever wonder that with your life? Some of you listening to me are like, after all, Dan, how could I ever say this? Look what he says. He answers me from his holy mountain. In there is the secret of why David was confident. David's confidence is in the fact that the Lord answers him, and he says this, and it's on purpose, because of his holy mountain. Where's the holy mountain? Where's the holy hill? What is he referring to? Listen, it's important. It's not just Bible talk. He's talking about Jerusalem, where the tabernacle was, where eventually the temple would be. What happened there? Do you know what happened there? Sacrifices were offered, suitable sacrifices, substitutes for the people's sin. Their death, the death of these, these animals was a symbolic, well it was, covering for the penalty of the sins of the one sacrificing them. David knew those sacrifices offered in that tabernacle on that holy hill pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that would be offered on the same hill one day. It instructs the way we pray. Because when I get down to my deeper anxiety and I'm like, I don't know, maybe God's given up on me. Maybe God's written me off. Lord, I know you will not forsake me because you were forsaken for me. David is praying and the lifter of my head is the one who would lay down his life. The one who would not forsake him because of David's sin was the one who one day would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of David's sin. On that holy hill in that tabernacle was the mercy seat that represented that I get what I don't deserve because Jesus took upon him what I do deserve. I was listening to a podcast. It was interesting. It was a lady was talking, Danielle Strickland, I think is her name, and uh, she used to work at a drop-in center, I believe it was in Toronto, Canada. They were a lot of homeless people, and um, she met one homeless person. His name was Red Dog, big, indigenous Canadian man. And uh, Red Dog had tied bells to his shoes. <laughs> so you could always hear him coming. He would come, and uh, he would a lot of times be inebriated, and he would come and find her at the center. Well, she uh, uh, attended a church that was connected with this drop-in center, and at this church, it was this church was in this big cathedral-like theater, and unfortunately, the church didn't have a ton of people that came to it, but every week, they were very proud of the fact that they would have choir singing, and they would have song time and scripture read, and there would be a sermon, and man, they, they, they would always have the service structured, and inevitably, though, in the middle of their neatly ordered service, there would be this moment when they would hear the bells, <laughs> and Red Dog would come in the back door, 
And Red Dog in inevitably would come in no matter what was happening, the choir or the pastor preaching or the scripture being read. And Red Dog would come in and those bells would be playing. And as he came in, he would be looking for Danielle. And he would say, Danielle, Danielle. And he'd walk down the middle of the aisle and you could almost see him people's eyes like this distraction and the bells, all the nerve. And he'd say, play me the song, play me the song, play me the song. And everybody in the, in the church knew that if Red Dog showed up and was asking Danielle to play the song, that no matter what was happening, that he was not going to stop until the song was played. So Danielle would get up and go over to the piano, and she began playing the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And as she played the song, Red Dog would go to the front of the auditorium where there was a prayer altar where on the front of the prayer altar it had these words, mercy seat. She would continue to play. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Red Dog would wrap his body around that mercy seat that prayer altar was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. He would just begin weeping. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And they would finish the song. Red Dog would unwrap himself from that mercy seat, prayer altar, he would stand up and he'd wipe the tears away. And he'd walk down the center aisle and he would leave. Their normal routine interrupted and distracted, like yours is. You see, sometimes the things we're afraid of become distractions that interrupt our plan. And the question for us is, do we hear the bell? Do we hear the bells that maybe are drawing us to the mercy seat? That's what David's doing. He's saying, you're the lifter of my head, and I know you're going to answer my prayer, and you're not going to forsake me because you were the one who was forsaken for me. Have you ever wrapped yourself around the mercy seat of God? said yes to the one who died in your place, Jesus. You see, David was real about what he was afraid of, and he allowed it to reveal his deeper anxieties. And his anxieties plunged him into an intimacy with God. It caused him to look at God and say, you are a close shield around me, not preventing but protecting the most vital parts of me in the middle of what's threatening me caused him to place the full waves of significance. Everything else is stripped away. My identity, value, and importance is wrapped up in you. And it is the thing that caused him to humbly and confidently realize that God was the lifter of his head because God was the one who would lay down his life for him. And look at the result. Look at the result. So therefore I lie down and sleep. David went from being afraid, look, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear. 
though ten of thousands assail me on every side. Fear is replaced with peace. Sleeplessness is replaced with rest and sleep. An inner peace that passes understanding begins to replace my fear. Heard Andy Stanley say one time, what if you began to pray and you prayed not necessarily till stuff changes, but what if you and I prayed till the peace comes? I think that's the point. I think it's the point of what Isaiah says when he says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose life is easy. You'll keep in perfect peace those whose life never has anything that's threatening, uncomfortable. Somebody says, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. You see, when I pray through my fears into the God who is my shield and my glory, the lifter of my head, then I can experience a peace that replaces that fear. Which leads David then to say this, and this feels weird at first. Arise, Lord, deliver me, God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. That sounds kind of rough at first. Break their teeth, man. What is he praying for here? Well, remember, there's some poetic imagery here. And he's saying, our fear and anxiety will drive us. Your fear, the things you're afraid of, and your anxiety, what, what, what that does, if we, we just leave it where it's at, it drives us into a tunnel of being consumed with ourselves. But when I pray through my fear, like David, I pray through my fear into God, it takes me through that tunnel to the light of freedom where I find God and I come out of that tunnel with now a passion to serve and love others. You see, fear begins to reveal my insecurities and anxieties. And when I pray through them, I experience an inner peace that begins to go from being self-centered to other-centered. And now that peace can be channeled into a love that is seeking justice for others. You see, here's how I'd write it. My self-centered anxiety is replaced with an other-centered love for justice. What's the opposite of fear? What's the opposite of fear? What's the answer? Love. You see, some of you are burying your fear. You're letting your fear drive the car of your life. And God's invitation to you today is to pray through your fear and let it reveal what you're really, really anxious about. And then lay that in front of God and invite him to be your shield around you to protect the most vital parts. Not to prevent, but to protect. And let those anxieties be the smoke that drives you to the fire of where it is that you're placing the weight of your importance and significance. And ask God to help you relocate that to him. And for those of you whose head hangs low, let him be the lifter of your head because of what happened on that holy hill, that he will not forsake you because he was the one who was forsaken for you. And you know what happens? An inner peace. An inner peace replaces that fear. And then what happens is that self-centered, being consumed with my own fears and anxiety, begins to be transformed into an other-centered love and passion for justice 
for people for whom I can leverage my life to serve their need. Praying through our fear. God, we're afraid about some real things. And those very real things are rooted in deep anxieties. But we pray through them and we find you, our shield around us. And we will trust you and we will follow you even through the circumstances we're afraid of. And God, the smoke of our anxiety many times takes us to the idols of our heart. And we want to replace and relocate our importance, our identity, our significance in you. And we're praying, God, that you would lift our head knowing that you were the God that was forsaken for us, that Jesus was forsaken for us so that we could be accepted as your sons and daughters in Christ. And there's where inner peace that passes understanding is. And so thank you for that. And help us to walk through that to see others and love others and have a freedom and a passion to serve them and to leverage our life for their benefit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.